<clears throat> Thank you, Gav. <laughs> You've totally um, stolen my thunder because now everyone just can't wait to hear from Paul Reardon. If you don't know him, um, you, you can count yourself fortunate because he's a bit of a nutcase, uh, but you'll be hearing from him. You'll be hearing from him shortly. Uh, my name is Paul. Welcome. If you haven't been around for the last three weeks, um, we're in a series called I Am Disciple. We're loving it. It's this process of following Jesus, actually understanding what following Jesus looks like. If you're exploring faith, if you're checking out the claims of Christ, this couldn't be a better time because we are actually doing our best to lift the lid on what Jesus himself, the man, was actually like. And um, that's important because Christian living, normal Christian living, as far as Jesus understands it, isn't observing certain religious rites, obeying certain moral teachings, even believing certain philosophy uh, or, or attending church services or anything. Normal Christian living, as far as Jesus understood it when he was inviting people into it, was, hey, come be like me. That's what Jesus thinks Christian living is. Come be like me. I've chosen you. I've called you. I've connected you back to my Father by forgiving you for your sin. And now there is nothing stopping you being like me, says Jesus. So he goes up to the first disciples he calls and he continues to say the exact same thing to you and I today. Let me be your rabbi, you be my disciple, which is old-fashioned language. But what that means is come and do exactly what I do. Come live the way I live. Come think the way I think. Come experience the Father and experience life just the way I experience him and experience it. And that means that we need to really understand what he was like if we're gonna have any shot at emulating him in any way. And unfortunately these days, I suppose as time has gone by and church tradition and all this sort of thinking has been piled on, we sometimes lose contact with just what Jesus was like. Uh, and so instead we go through the motions of all this other stuff you think you're supposed to do and know to be a Christian. But this old fashioned idea of just following your rabbi and copying him has disappeared a little bit. And Jesus came at a very specific time to a very specific place in order to set that culture as the culture of his followers. Galilee, at that time, the little towns around Galilee was the place where more than at any other time in history, this rabbi-disciple concept was lived out. More than at any time prior in Israel's history and certainly more than at any time since. There was this idea that a rabbi, a man of God, would choose a few followers, the best of the best, uh, and let them live with him and travel with him and learn from him uh, and model their lives on him with the assumption that if my rabbi chose me, he thinks I can do what he does. And um, Jesus went to Galilee, it's the very spot where this kind of culture was going on and did the very thing by recruiting some disciples and encouraging them to follow him. And so we've been looking at some stuff about Jesus that he's daring us to emulate him in. And we've seen that he's free and we've seen that he's loving and we've seen all kinds of cool stuff about him. Today, I don't know if you've heard this about Jesus, um, he was quite powerful. He had some mad skills. He could do some pretty amazing stuff. And if you're a disciple and you've been picked by a rabbi and then he's turning water into wine, you must be thinking, firstly, this is great. <laughs> like I've picked the right rabbi because none of the other rabbis are doing this kind of stuff. Um, but then you're sort of thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Because the whole assumption, right, the whole contract is he picked me so I could do what he does. And he just walked on water the other day. What are we, what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to emulate him? Uh, and he's just healing every sickness he encounters and sort of casting out demons and has authority over the spiritual realm, has authority, it's actually less impressive, but visually, I suppose, more impressive than having authority over the spiritual realm. He had authority over the weather. Like, you're in your boat with your, with your rabbi. He's having a kip because he's tired. The waves start to rise. The wind is howling. You're straining against the oars because you're you know, desperately trying to keep the 
both pointing towards the waves so you don't get broadsided. He couldn't be bothered. He's still asleep. Eventually you rouse him. Stop dorsing, Rabbi, we're in trouble. And he just stands up in the bow of the boat and says to the wind, no, thank you. And it stops. What are you supposed to do with that if the whole psychological contract is what he does, I'm supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with that today? And so the question we're asking is, how did Jesus actually do all this powerful stuff that he did? Clearly he was powerful. What was the mechanism? What was he actually thinking? If we can pull this off, we could go to the scriptures and work out what was Jesus actually thinking? What did he believe that allowed him to be powerful in that way? If it's really the case that his disciples are called to be powerful in the same way. And I suppose we need to establish that fact as well. Are we actually called to do the same stuff Jesus did? I wanna start with a thought experiment. Um, how many senses are there? Five, right? Five senses, okay. Um, smell and sight and touch and hearing. And what's the other one? Taste. Um, says the best baker in the church. Rowena makes a good cake, so it's good that she knows about taste. Um, just for argument's sake, imagine that the majority of human beings lacked the sense of hearing. So as it actually happens, the majority of human beings do have the sense of hearing and those who are deaf are in the minority. But imagine it was reversed, that, all, that it was normal not to be able to hear, that as far as we knew, there were actually only four senses. Okay, can you sort of imagine that world? It's not that hard to imagine. Um, and there were some people, some oddballs, who claimed there was a fifth sense. Can you think how we would treat those people, first off? We would probably mistrust them. You know, they're going on about stuff that the rest of us can't hear, obviously, you don't believe is real. And so they're reacting to some other stuff, tuning into some other frequencies. But because the majority of us can't hear, they would probably have been pariahs to some extent. They'd have been sort of weird characters. And we might well have come up with quite self-righteous reasons for why these are odd people who shouldn't be trusted. The stuff that they're saying we're all missing out on. Well, clearly we're not all missing out on anything. You know, we've got it right, so they must just be making it up. Maybe they've got some evil motives. Um, maybe they're just strange. Maybe they're demon-possessed, right? They, they claim that they can hear this stuff. We all know there's no such thing as sound, right? Can you imagine that world? Not only would we outcast those people, but also they would have a great advantage over the rest of us, wouldn't they? They would have an unfair advantage. If they can hear stuff coming and you can't, um, then they might seem weird, but also they would seem to have a bit of an unfair advantage over us. Now, I hope you've been able to sort of engage your imagination a little bit. How do you know, logically speaking, that there are only five senses? What logical evidence do you actually have to really pin the fact that just because most of us have five senses, we're therefore sure there's no other sense that we're missing out on. If you could easily imagine the scenario where most of us only have four, can I suggest you can pretty easily imagine the scenario that there's some other frequency that's also real, but most of us don't have it. And some do, some seem to claim that they can tap into something else and we go, well, they're a bit weird. They must have some strange motives for that. Surely this is all there really is to experience. And these people who are saying there's other stuff to experience, well, they probably smoke too much of something. But they also claim that they have a little unfair advantage over, the, over us, and we don't like the sound of that at all, so we ostracize them. Okay, so you can probably figure out where I'm trying to go with this. You already have an inkling. You already have a basis of, I suppose you could say, almost another sense. You know that 
all that you can see and touch and taste and feel and hear is there is more than that, right? That your senses don't quite give you access to all of the real world in the truest sense of that word. That there is something that goes on that lets you know when you shouldn't trust someone and you can't tell why. It's not that they sound different. It's not that they look different. Something in your gut just lets you know this is a person who has evil or violent intentions and you're not always sure why and you can't describe it later. You can walk into a room and some of you will have this experience where there's nothing objective that you could say tipped you off, but you know that a fight has just gone on between that husband and wife, for example. And there's subtle cues. There's something in the, you know, the pot plants quivering in the corner or whatever. And you just know something is not quite as peaceful as it all seems. But you couldn't say, well, it smells different in that room. That's why I knew. You have a gut feel sometimes or you have a sense, potentially in worship earlier, even if you're not really sure about all the spiritual stuff, you'd have sensed there's something quite beautiful kind of weighing on your heart of hearts somehow when you sing those words and you can't explain why. It's not that the music sounds particularly different from other music, but there's some quality that it has that can't be made sense of in terms of the five senses. You get what I'm saying? Do we kind of kind of agree on this idea? People have studied NDEs, NDEs are near-death experiences, and found fascinating stuff. In a moment, I'm gonna ask Paul Redden to come and speak because he's one of those. He's died, he enjoyed it so much, he's done it twice. Um, I know, right? And he's gonna come and describe his experiences to you. But um, those who study people who've had near-death experiences, and by near-death experiences, I mean people who have had no heart activity, no brain activity for some extended period of time. They have been dead medically, but have been resuscitated or brought back for whatever reason. And you know that fascinatingly, the vast majority of people who've had these experiences have memories from the time when none of their senses were working. And not just fantastical made-up ones, often they can tell you stuff that was going on in the operating theater at the time or the emergency ward. They'll know the phrases that doctors were saying that they have no business knowing. But their hearing wasn't working, it couldn't have been because their brains weren't working. And their sight and their taste and their touch and all that, the five senses were not an operation, but something was doing some sensing. This person continued to exist even while physically in every measurable way they didn't seem to be operational. So what was going on there? What's the story behind that? Let's try to engage with this idea that we really are spiritual beings and in fact we live in a spiritual world maybe more than we accept. And so I'm gonna ask Paul to come and tell us. Firstly, I mean, he'll speak briefly now and then again at the end. Um, You've, you've pegged out. Uh, tell us about that and your experience. And then also, and don't be fooled, he's gonna to try to come across as a bit of an idiot. Um, he's actually one of the most intelligent people I know. He's read deeply, he's thought deeply uh, and widely about these things. And so tell us what you think about the spiritual realm and people being more than just physical and death and all those good things. Okay, well, I did have a first-hand experience. Um, I was swimming in the Virgin Active and my heart stopped. I didn't have a heart attack. My heart just stopped. Um, they resuscitated me for 45 minutes. And uh, during that period, it was very peaceful. Everyone else was a bit chaotic, but I, was, I got to stand outside my body and just watch everything that was going on. Um, it was, it, it, it still is the most peaceful thing I've ever felt. Also, something I needed to say, and I didn't say it in the first uh, sermon, is when you leave your body, you're still you. I think everyone thinks they become, I don't know, I mean, I thought like me, I was me. I'm probably not as faulty, but I definitely was me. And it was just, it was amazing. And just watching the people, I could tell where Ray was at the swimming pool. I could see where Nathan was, my son. I could see all the fuss going on around me. 
I wasn't aware that that was me. I was just like, what the heck is going on? So yeah, the, um, the spiritual realm is very, very, very real. <laughs> cool. Okay. Tell, tell us, um, just with a few more uh, minutes, sorry, I think I'm feeding back off your mic. The, um, the experience of this whole near-death thing or death thing has sparked some curiosity in you. Um, and I know you've researched and looked at how, how this works. What do you believe about people now? How, how do you see human beings as, as kind of wired together? What's, what do you, how do you understand yourself and people? Wow. Um, so sometimes we all battle with people sometimes. I mean, some people can really irritate you. And um, God, <laughs> he changed my perspective in terms of um, I took the person that probably irritates me the most the one day, and I said to God, please show me them through your eyes. And he showed me the person as a child. And all the products I'm seeing in front of me is the person that they're reacting as, the spiritual being I'm seeing, all the hurts that they're manifesting to me. So like, also like when I'm speaking to you guys, like I don't really like looking around. And it's not because I'm shy. I'm actually not that shy. But it's because I see things. And that's also might make people go, oh, wow. But I, I, I see things on people and I get to speak on things. And, and so God just shows me things. And, 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 and it's a spiritual realm that is just... It's so exciting. I could speak on it for hours, and later on I'll tell you some of the stories that have, that have happened. But there are so many, and it's just, it's more real to me. Sure, I, 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 I can't ex explain to you how badly and how much I love it, and, and yeah, it's like nothing I've ever done, had, seen, tried. So, yeah, it's amazing. Cool, and Paul has tried some stuff. <laughs> More on that later. Okay, thank you both for now. What, what, he's, what he's describing, and it is obviously hard to find words for this, is that we live in a spiritual world, and you can hear those terms and go, okay, I kind of understand that. I suppose because of his exceptional experience, this has now really created a hunger in Paul that all of us should be inspired by, to, to go, well, what is actually going on here? You know, Scripture talks about the fact that we don't fight against flesh and blood, that if all you think you're dealing with is this person who just won't pay you what they owe you or this neighbor who's doing what they're doing or whatever else it is that you think is the problem, you're missing the point. You're the deaf person going, no, but there's no such thing as sound. Paul's going, there's a whole lot more. There is spiritual stuff. There is more than meets the eye that's encouraging us to behave the way we behave and, and, and locking us into certain habits or patterns, even potentially orchestrating world events. And so, you know, people can get freaked out by this, just like the people who can't hear would be annoyed with someone claiming, oh, there's really sound that's organizing all of this. But there's also an invitation. You can actually start to open your spiritual eyes and see um, more of what's really going on. And that's the world that Jesus seemed to inhabit. Jesus seemed to have those senses turned all the way up, didn't he? He had the volume up to 11 on the spiritual realm that we often sort of zone out. And not only could he sense what was going on in the spiritual realm, he seemed to be able to be effective in the spiritual realm. So someone presents with sickness and he's able to rebuke the sickness, not heal it in the sense of fixing the medical problem, but see it as a spiritual problem and then just resist it and have it turn tail and flee. And the same with any kind of demonic experiences or everything that Jesus encountered. He seemed to see, yes, there's a physical truth. There's also a spiritual truth behind it. He could not only sense it, he could then have some power over it and affect it. And so the question again, if you're a disciple following your rabbi around, watching him tap into this frequency and operate powerfully in that way, how's he doing it? What's going on? What's the mechanism? What's the frequency he's tuning in on? What's, 
What's allowing him to behave in this way? Okay, so that's what we're going to try and understand. I wanna start at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Luke 3, verse four, Jesus heads over to the Jordan River where his cousin John, uh, known as the baptizer, is baptizing people. Uh, and calling them to repent and return to God. And John's a powerful guy. Um, and so Jesus turns up there and gets baptized himself. And here's what happens. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. So this is eyewitness records of what went on in that moment. It must have been a powerfully affecting moment if you saw this happen. And then not only do you see the Holy Spirit in bodily form descend on Jesus like a dove, you then hear with one of the natural senses, not some voodoo spiritual groupthink experience, people heard with their own ears a voice from heaven saying, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into essentially the rest of his life and everything he went on to do. Who's the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? Just for those new to the conversation. Um, God, although he is, this is a monotheistic thing we're talking about. We're talking about one God, not a pantheon of gods. But within the person of God, there are these three distinct personalities. There's a community of love and intimacy within God, which makes him self-sufficient and able to say, I am love in a way that actually makes sense. And he wouldn't be able to say if he was just alone all on his own in the universe. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in this eternal and glorious dance of intimate love and connection. And out of the overflow of that community, they then go and create everything they create, including you and I. And so God, absolutely God in the form of Jesus, God the Son comes to earth. But the whole Trinity gets in on this moment as Jesus is baptized. And so you have the Father endorsing his son, saying, this is my son whom I love. Later, he'll say, once again, audibly, this is my son, you should listen to him. That's beautiful, a father-son moment. But also the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and fills Jesus. Why? Jesus is fully God. Why does he need the Holy Spirit to fill him? Those of you who've been around church for a while might have become familiar with the term being filled with the Holy Spirit as applies to Christians who need to be empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. I'll describe that more in a moment. But why did Jesus need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't know if this bothers any of you, but he's fully God. He doesn't need any extra, right? He's not some, I mean, this is an important tenant of the Christian faith. He's not some prophet who just rose up and then attained some level of enlightenment. This is fully God who's taken on the form of Mankind, why be filled with the Holy Spirit? Part of the answer to that comes in Philippians 2. If you're gonna memorize any few verses from five onwards, uh, is amazing. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus anyway, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was, the God, the Son, totally with God, equal to God, didn't consider that something to hang on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you just, we don't do this teacher tell thing often, but can you turn to the person next to you and say, Jesus emptied himself? Okay, it's a really important idea. So if you didn't quite say it, Jesus emptied himself, which in the ancient Greek means he emptied himself. Like this is not a trick statement. Absolute deified God, with all the power that's attached to that, empties himself. Doesn't consider that something to be clung onto. I mean, the exquisite humility of this moment, right? Jesus empties himself and takes on the form of a human. Not smuggling in some extra cheat codes 
or some hotkeys he can press that turn everyone else onto half speed or something when he's playing the human game. He empties himself of all of his divine privileges and comes just like you or I to earth as a human being with five senses only, trapped in this physical realm with all the limitations we experience. Hebrews in chapter four will say, we don't have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our struggles. He experienced them all. He was absolutely human. Which is something we say often here, but it's just magnificent and has huge ramifications when you're a disciple going, so how does my rabbi do all this badass stuff? Because this isn't Jesus cheating. This isn't God just half-heartedly pretending to be a human being, but actually with all this access to extra special skills that we don't have. This is hugely important because many of us really want to say that because then it lets us off the hook. Well, Jesus obviously had some special skills, which means that the stuff he did is totally off limits to the rest of us. There's no way we could even be expected to live up to that. And when Jesus says, yeah, you'll do greater things than I did, well, he was saying something figurative. And when Jesus sent his disciples out and said, go and heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, teach people to believe in me, wow, it was kind of metaphorical because he's Jesus. He has access to all these sweet skills. We don't have access to those sweet skills. We're made of different stuff from him. Not according to the Bible. He emptied himself and took on the form of a human in every sense of the word, which makes that baptism moment when the Holy Spirit filled Jesus fascinating. Because up until that point, Jesus had never done anything particularly impressive. And I would argue, couldn't have done anything impressive up until that moment. The mechanism was not yet available to Jesus to perform miracles. Don't believe anyone who tells you that when Mary was trying to make Jesus bath, he was walking on the water and refusing to go in. (laughs) Fully man, totally aware of who he was, his royal standing, what he represents. He was not at any point insecure about whether he was the son of God or not. But physically speaking, mechanically speaking, a human being, just like you are, Okay, so once again, how did he behave so powerfully? Where did this radical power come from? How did it work? And the answer is pretty simple. It's in, the, it's in, it's in his, his baptism in Luke 3, which we just read, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I feel like I wanna just prove this point a little further because you would be right to be skeptical. Aren't we considering Jesus a little irreverently here? Aren't we maybe guilty potentially of blasphemy? Jesus was still very special, of course. There's a fascinating psalm, Psalm 8, verse 5. David's writing it, and he's kind of going, God, why do you even care about us? Mankind, we're so low. We're so unimpressive. Psalm 8, verse 5. Lord, what is man that you're even mindful of us? You made us a little lower than the angels. So just quick catch up for those who haven't been paying attention to the created order of things, the the cosmic food chain. You've got God, the creator. Then you've got everything created, which in the same way that the stuff my kid draws is less impressive than the kid himself, Created things, even the most impressive and and powerful created things are still by orders of magnitude far less impressive than the creator himself, which means Satan's not that impressive to God. Because angels, spiritual realms, the fallen angels who've rebelled against his rightful rule, everything else that goes on is still created. This isn't an even Stephen battle between good and evil. This is not yin-yang. You don't live in yin-yang. You live in God the creator, and then a little pocket rebellion going on on our planet that thinks it's quite impressive, but really isn't because it's still a created thing. And then below that sort of spiritual realm of created things, you get mankind who are created a little lower than the angels. You're less impressive than the spiritual stuff, but you have the glorious 
honor of being created in God's image. And in fact, God loves our species so much that he has specially chosen to work with us in ways that we don't deserve, which is why David writes in that Psalm, God, what is man that you're mindful of us? Why do you pay us so much attention? Why are you so interested in our itty bitty little species? We're not even as impressive as the least impressive angel. Okay, so Psalm 8 verse five gets quoted strangely in Hebrews chapter two. So Hebrews chapter two starts out by quoting Psalm eight. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor, amazingly, and put everything under their feet. There's this honor that's coming for mankind that doesn't make sense when you think about our station. The writer goes on, and putting everything under them, God, God left nothing that is not subject to them. There's this amazing authority and dignity on mankind, but from halfway through verse eight, yet at present we don't see everything subject to mankind. Mankind's not ruling on earth like we probably should be. We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Hold the phone. While Jesus was on earth for a little while, he was absolutely mankind. Jesus himself, the prince of heaven, was less powerful than his angels while he was on earth. Just let the force of that sink in. When God manifested himself as a human being on earth, he didn't cut corners. He didn't keep a backdoor cheat code into doing things as God on earth. He was absolutely a human, just like you or I, a little lower than the angels. So, for the however many, fifth time, how did he do this stuff? How did he express all this power? Well, somehow in his experience of the Holy Spirit, he was able to. And I'm not gonna speak for very long on the, on the sort of detailed mechanisms of how you can interact with the Holy Spirit. The first thing to say is, this whole extra sense, ability, opportunity that's available to human beings to actually start to engage with the spiritual realm is built on, is predicated on the idea that you first reconnect with God yourself. So if you're exploring the claims of Christ, if you're not sure you are one of his disciples yet, if you're watching all this stuff going, this is quite interesting, then take your time, you're so welcome here, but just know that this access to the spiritual realm is still off limits to you and I until we cross the line of faith into being in Christ. You don't have access to it. You are still blind or deaf or dumb or whatever it is in this space. And that can sound so condescending and so exclusive. It's just how it works that you are a physical being until you are reborn as a spiritual being. And the only way for that to happen is for you to embrace this incredible sacrificial death that Jesus died on your behalf, which forgives you of the debt against you and then reconnects you to your father, the author of life. And so as you connect to the father, now it's possible for his Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you. Up until that point, Holy Spirit can't have anything to do with you. Can't have anything to do with me. I'm too filthy and unholy and an open rebellion against God. The Holy Spirit can't inhabit me. But once I've allowed Jesus to forgive me, of my sin and reconnect with my Father. Then the floodgates are open. And then this is something God is dying to give you. In fact, has died to give you. Jesus says, even evil fathers give good gifts to their kids when they ask for them. How much more does the Father long to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? And so for those who have put their faith in Jesus, you now have access to the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus did all his amazing stuff through. So then why do not every, does not every Christian seem to operate at the level that Jesus was operating at? I just feel like I wanna zoom in on one big reason. You can go and read Galatians 5 and work out what it actually looks like to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. There's much to be learned. Here's the big idea. In my experience working with Christians, in my experience of my own life, it's not 
lack of faith. It's not lack of good behavior. It's not that you don't pray often enough. In fact, it's not even that you don't believe the right things about God. I know many Christians who believe very much the right things about God and still don't seem to be operating with much power. And you want power, right? You wanna be able to get the decisions right. You wanna send your kids to the right school. You wanna respond with the right word when you have that one opportunity to potentially prevent a divorce with your best mates. When you have that one moment where your kid's friend who's now hooked on some substance opens their heart to you for just a second and you want the supernatural pearl of wisdom in that moment when you are dealing with that same old sin habit that you wanna kick once and for all. You, You want power. Many Christians seem not to be living in that much of it and I know for myself and I know for many of the people that I have the privilege of getting to know deeply, it's, it's, there's one variable, there's one thing that I think makes the most difference to your experience of the Holy Spirit. And it's not believing the right things about God, it's believing the right things about you. The sense of unworthiness that I'm somehow disqualified, that I'm not good enough, that I don't pray enough, I don't know enough, I can't quote enough scripture, I haven't done my time yet, I haven't spent enough, whatever, I don't give enough money to the poor, I don't read the... The sense of unworthiness that I somehow don't deserve this gift, that I'm just flesh and blood, I'm just a person. That is the thing to me that seems to cripple the vast majority of Christians the most. That's the one huge advantage Jesus had over us, isn't it? Because there was not a single second, not a split second of Jesus' life where he questioned his worthiness. He may have emptied himself of his divine abilities, but he didn't for one moment renounce his identity as a son of God. He absolutely knew that he knew that he knew that his father loved him, was with him, would never reject him. And secure in that knowledge, I suspect he had a huge head start over the rest of us and starting to flow in the power of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who's put their faith in Jesus has this amazing promise that you can be like Jesus on earth, that you can claim his identity as your own, that you can be sure that Jesus has brought a way into the affections of the Father that you could never have got yourself, that God thinks about you the same way that he thinks about Jesus, that he loves you, has chosen you, is for you, that you are worthy. Essentially, what I'm saying is that there is an amazing link between this good news of how Jesus has brought us worthiness and our ability to be empowered like Jesus was empowered. Paul often linked the gospel, this good news, to the power of the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, Um, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. He's saying that we didn't just tell you these words, this good news, there was power connected to it. He would say similarly in Romans 15 and loads of other places we don't have time to, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you can zone out for this bit, but Christians, if you wanna experience more of the power of God in your life, certainly for me, Paul, if I want to experience more of the power of God in my life, I think one of the huge ways for me to have that start to happen is to apply the gospel to myself more and apply the gospel to people around me more because God's word never goes out without him attached to it. He's so fond of this news, this amazingly good news, that he loves to be connected to it. And anytime I'm sharing the gospel with someone who's not a believer, when I'm just telling someone who doesn't know about Jesus, what Jesus means to me, I know I feel more of the presence of the Holy Spirit than at any other time. Perhaps... Christians here just need to be challenged again. Your rabbi spent a lot of his time telling people about his father. The Holy Spirit came to empower people to be witnesses. If you wanna experience the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're hoping that what that means is goosebumps and fallovers and happy feelings and and a little bit of encouragement and maybe a healing for yourself, like, wow, dream bigger. 
The Holy Spirit came to empower Christians to be able to proclaim Jesus to the world and bring the good news of salvation to the world. If you wanna experience the power of the Holy Spirit, potentially the thing you should be doing more of is partnering with the gospel and applying it to the world more. And apply it to yourself if you're feeling disqualified or unworthy. Preach the gospel to yourself. Look, Jesus bought you at a price. You are worthy. Nothing disqualifies you from experiencing the Holy Spirit. And as we do those two things, I suspect more than anything else, that catapults us into this extra sense, this extra ability to recognize there's more to this world. Coronavirus is not just a physical thing, is it? You know that already. There's a spirit of fear connected behind that. There's all sorts of stuff that Satan must have cooked up. And the fact that in the very same week, the Russians and the Saudis decide to destroy the world economy with you know, oil for half price, like, is that really a coincidence? And the thing that's going on in your business and the thing that's going on in your mind when you're trying to sleep and the thing that's going on in your kids, like, you think that's just physical? Or do you wanna start actually tapping into the way that God wants to use you powerfully in those situations? If so, apply the gospel to yourself more, preach the gospel more, and expect that God loves to be connected to the, the word that as it's preached. And you can say, like Paul, when we spoke about the gospel, there was power connected to it. I'm gonna ask Redden to come back here and tell us some stories. And the question I have for him is how he experiences just in everyday life living empowered by the Holy Spirit. He only has about seven minutes. I know you might be wondering how your kids are. They're probably fine. Uh, so you don't have anywhere to go. But yeah, bro, tell us what you experienced living in step with the Spirit. Sure. So um, I've got three stories, but I'll keep it quick. Um, one of them is um, I'm on immunosuppressants, which means that it, so your immune system's not exactly what it should be. So I should probably be more scared than most of you. Um, funny thing is, a while back in December, my beautiful wife and I, well, I got sick first. Um, that funny flu, the thing that was going around, and uh, <laughs> I was sick for three days. <laughs> I was sick for three weeks. Um, so I, I laughed at that, but uh, because <laughs> that's just God showing up, which He does often. Um, in my everyday life, it's about, jeez, everything I do, I'm really lucky that I get to spend every day with God, and some people go, oh no, I'm just going to wait till I get home and I'll pray. Jeez, He's involved in my business decisions. He's involved in, I go to a coffee shop, I say, God, is there anyone you want me to talk to? Um, at the tellers, at the till. Um, he's just, and he's given me so many words. Um, I was at Steers talking to the lady. God told me she had a son. He told me what his favorite toy was. And, I, and he said to me, I told her that um, her, um, he loves her and she, does, she needs to stop trying. And she feels like, oh, she's just working hard enough. And I said, you don't need to work for anything. He's done it already. Um, so those are the kind of things that my life looks like. And it's also, I also have bad days, as you all do. Um, there's days you get down. There's days, on those days though, and like, you know, the feelings thing, as Paulie was saying, we get like, oh, I don't feel like it. Those are the days that I really go for it. Like, <laughs> I'm like, this thing can't be about feelings because you're never going to do anything. Nobody really feels like doing anything sometimes. You just feel like sitting there. So I just get up and, I, and I'll go. Like, I've had, and another story, uh, Florida Road, Sorry if I bored you, you've heard this one before, but this one blew my mind and it was awesome because it was before my transplant. Um, the, I was, we were having a prayer day, I was getting over it because I feel like people were manufacturing stuff and those of you know me that I'm, I'm, I love Jesus, but I'm not religious, don't, I'm, I'm yeah, anyway, uh, passionately so. Um, you can't box them. Anyway, so, and so I, I was having a wee and I'm, me and God, I'm tuning, I'm like, this is, this is, I'm over this. So anyway, I go back into the church. I sit down like a grumpy kid. And I sit there, okay, I just want this thing to end. And there's this beautiful girl sitting on the side. And 
fellow God said, go pray for her. And I'm like, not happening. She's pretty, dodgy old man, not happening. She gets up, she goes to a friend of mine. Her name is Ange. I thought, okay, cool, I'll do this thing. I feel like he's speaking. Off I go. And I promise you, this is not what I'm feeling like. I'm grumpy bugger now. And uh, I get there, and as I get to her, um, Father God says to me, uh, I, well, I didn't even know how to ask her the question. I said, uh, <laughs> have you lost a child? And she said, yes, I had an abortion when I was 20. I said, God told me you had an abortion. He said, your little boy is with him, and you need to forgive yourself and get on with your life. Now, I was crying because I've never met this lady in my life. I don't even know her. I was more crying at the fact that I got this thing right because, trust me, I, I, yeah, I, it was, it, I didn't even know where it came from. So that was just relying on what the Holy Spirit does. And you can do that in every single one of you. So it's like you all think, oh, I'm disqualified because I, I don't know. You had some stupid thought or you, you're not your worst thought and you're not your worst feelings. Just remember that. God's bigger than all of that thing. And if you get stuck there, then it keeps you there instead of going after what he wants to give you. And he wants to give you so much. Tell us about the, the lady with the phone call. Oh, jeez, yeah. Um, so I, I have a, a habit of, um, as I said in the first service, I don't really care what people think of me. Um, having died twice and like, I, mean, I love people. And that's why like also when I look around, I see so much on people. And so that's why I don't, I try not to look around. So I might seem like I'm nervous. I, I really am not. Anyway, I was in a, 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 a coffee shop lady's sitting there and I thought, okay, God told me something before I go to her. I said, listen, your son, this is your son's name. So I got that right. I was like, oh, wow. And I said, uh, he's going to phone you and he's going to tell you that uh, he, um, <laughs> uh, he's in hospital. But he's fine. God told me to tell you he's fine. So, uh, yeah, I go sit down. I thought, well, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I got his name right, so I'm, I'm pretty stoked. <laughs> sat down and um, I was a couple of minutes later, she comes crying. She said, he just phoned me, he's in hospital and he's fine. He thought he was something serious and he's fine. So that's just God using us and he can use any one of us. And one more story. Um, before my heart transplant, uh, we were praying here and he's a very good friend of mine here, young Wayne. And uh, God gave him a word. And the word was that you'll get the heart of an 18-year-old and it will come from a head injury. We thought cycling, to be honest, we did. We thought cycling. So I must be honest, and I'm, it sounds very morbid, but I did watch a lot of cycling races after that. Because um, you're trying to survive. It's, 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 it's the truth. Uh, um, and uh, anyway, um, and guess what? I, I mean, a year later, I got the heart of an 18-year-old, and it was from a head injury. And it sounds morbid, but God has a bigger plan. And we all get so stuck on our worst days or the worst feelings. God's plans are way better than anything you can imagine. I love the idea that when you're starting out with a new sense, you suck at it. My two-week-old keeps hitting herself in the face because she doesn't realize that her hands are connected to her body. I mean, how dumb, but that's just how infants are, right? Like they don't, and she's going to take a while before she can walk and a while before she understands when she's going to poo and how to deal with that. Like, obviously, when you're starting out, it's tricky to deal with this new capacity that you have, this new power that you have. Christians, I think, have this dreadful performance anxiety where it's like, well, the Holy Spirit's gonna come on me, it's gonna be some big event and then suddenly I'm gonna be Paul Redden or better, or Paul Redden without the tattoos. And like, it's not gonna be like that. We get to try and fail and have our rabbi come and say, oh, well, actually, yeah, you needed to do a bit of prayer and fasting for that one or yeah, that was great, well done. And 
All of this hinges once again on this idea that you're worthy, that he's chosen you, he wants to work with you. When it works, it wasn't about you. When it fails, it wasn't about you. You're committed to a process of walking with your rabbi in a spiritual world and allowing your eyes to open to all the amazing stuff that's actually available. Um, you quoted Proverbs in the previous service that it's, it's God's great privilege. He reserves the right to hide wonderful things on earth. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the glory of kings to unearth them, to reveal them. And so there's all this wonderful secret stuff that most human beings can't experience, but you are invited into this dialogue with God of working out what's going on, what's behind that person, why are they behaving that way, what, what, what is available right now. We're gonna close, but I wanna ask Paul to pray for us because some of you need to put your faith in Jesus today. It's time. Enough of this knowing about him, it's time to know him and it's time to allow the Holy Spirit to actually fill your life. Uh, and so I'm gonna ask you to actually make that step uh, if you need to make that. Others of you need to experience the power of God on you. You have a healing you're waiting for, you're having some release you're waiting for, and you need that to happen. Others of you are tired of being the recipients of the power of God. You wanna flow in the power of God and actually allow Him to start to use you. Do we need to know something? Yes. Okay, so before Paul prays, what do we need to know? Okay, cool. We're about to... Something cool is about to happen. I'm always aiming for cool. That's great. Um, is this coming from Kids Church? No, oh, Jules. Come, Jules. Tell us what's happened. Sorry, I don't do this um, standing up here, so I actually think I should turn around. And, um, but I just... Um, We've driven back here to share this. We were here this morning um, at the earlier service and uh, I felt um, this overwhelming need um, to pray for um, a very close friend of mine's son who's been battling with uh, drug addiction and all sorts. And it's been a very long journey for them. Anyway, I've got to keep this down to like a minute. We sat here and you shared your story um, and what came over so powerfully, I'm sorry, I'm so nervous, I don't do this, um, was how we don't have to feel whether or not we're qualified to do something and to go and pray over somebody and to go out there and be brave enough to do it and the feeling of worthiness. And during the service, I said to my husband, we have to go and pray for him. And I know his mum had taken him to, to church this morning. And... Uh, so we left, before we left here, I said to Gavin that I felt this was what we needed to do. And he said, uh, something's telling me to pray specifically over generational curses, which is something that's been on my heart in this situation. Anyway, we drove straight there and I messaged his mum and said, uh, would it be possible? I know this sounds crazy, but if he's with you, could you just send him out for five minutes? And Vlad said, how random, like she's not going to let her, her son just go out now for five minutes. We got to the gates uh, of the church and they were shut and it said that they stay shut for the duration of the service. And we prayed and I said, Lord, if you want the gates to open, open them. And the gates opened and we drove in. And he had actually been called out for an addict who has gone off the rails. And so the first person we saw round the side was actually him. He hadn't been asked yet by his mom to go outside. And uh, 
I said, do you remember me? I met you years ago. He said, yes, of course. I said, please don't think we are freaks, but we want to pray over you, and we believe that God has got a very, very strong message for you and that you need to release uh, these addictions of substances and relationships because you actually have a calling on your life uh, to, to just powerfully influence the youth with the journey that you've had. And the reaction that he had was just unbelievable. But what is even more incredible is... Um, it was meant to have happened specifically today for him. We got in the car and there was a message from his mum saying that he couldn't come out, but he had. The gates had opened, he had come out, we had done what we felt God told us to do. And there was then a message on my phone from somebody in the congregation um, that said, I don't know you, but I felt on my heart tell Julie that everything is going to be okay. And she had said it to Gavin, and Gavin had given my number. And it was only a minute prior that I had messaged his mom and said, I have this feeling that God wants to say to you as his mom, everything is going to be okay with your son. And, yeah, thank goodness, with technology, I actually have the messages to prove it all, and I won't bore you with all of them, but that came through. Mm. Um, and that could never have been without the Holy Spirit. And that, I'm sorry, where you say don't wait for the big miracles, those are the little miracles and the message that you shared and the ripple effect onto us, giving us the courage to go and do that, which I never would have done. And that God opened the doors, even though there were going to be those hurdles of not getting in and his mom not letting him out. And uh, I just think it's amazing. And whoever that guy is that, that got that message. So I'm sorry that I've just hijacked this mic and I'm not qualified for it. But um, um, let's just accept what's going on here for a moment, if you don't mind. Like God is at work. He's in our midst, the creator of supernovas and this parter of seas and the God, we welcome you here. We recognize just the awesome, terrifying thing of falling into the hands of a living God. You are here, and we recognize you. And you are clearly all over. You have an agenda. You've had a plan that you've been orchestrating for this moment. There are people here who are holding on to unforgiveness. There are people who are holding on to bitterness. There are people here who are broken, in many ways by our own hands, which makes it so hard to heal because we think we deserve our pain. There are dreadful sinners here. There are people who think evil, awful things. There are victims here of so many cycles of spiritual oppression where it just seems like every new relationship they start ends up going the same way because there is a, an evil power behind that that keeps creating that same cycle. There is all sorts of work of Satan at large. And Jesus, you came to destroy the works of Satan. You came to seek and save the lost. You came to reconnect us to our Father and then empower us to live the way human beings were designed to live but have very, very rarely been able to live. Totally loved, totally empowered, totally connected to you. And so God, I pray that you would continue to do whatever it is that you wanna do. 
I just want to pray over a spirit of intellect. There are so many people hanging on to intellect. They're thinking that's going to save them. And there's a scripture that says, Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways trust me and I'll make your path straight. And I feel like that's for somebody here today. I feel like, yeah, God's going to just shift atmospheres. He's moving already. He's going to change perspectives. He's... He's going to take people that so rely heavily on feelings and just let you work. Instead of what you're feeling, you're just going to trust him and you're going to do what he tells you to do. Because he's a God of, he comes through every time. He'll never, ever, ever let you down. And if you think he has, then you've missed something. And I promise you, he's got some gold there for you. He is a God of miracles. I pray that you mobilize your saints. There's probably not a sick person in Hillcrest who doesn't know a Christian, and yet it seems to me like the vast majority of sick people in Hillcrest don't get prayed for. We're not gonna accept that any longer. He calls us to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, introduce people to you. That when your word goes out, it never goes out void, it never returns to you empty, that your power is attached to this message. I pray that you mobilize us. That right now you'd be commissioning people to start thinking outside of themselves, the, the role they have in history, the glorious role you have for, for us individually and corporately in your grand plan. I pray that you reunite, that you reconcile sons to fathers, daughters to mothers, husbands to wives in this moment. Paul closes off. And guys, I know we are completely over time, so just give us a couple of minutes. This never, ever happens in our service. Um, but Gary's just got something that he just wants to share very quickly. Thank you, Paul. I think, I think there's a calling for us to be bolder than we are. I had a sense this morning that um, we needed to be more community-based. We needed to be of family. This church doesn't run through the elders. It runs through us. And um, I just honor your bravery this morning, man. <laughs> and I knew this morning that someone was going to break that the routine, <laughs> if I can call it that. Each one of us have to engage. Each one of us have to walk in the spirit. And I just wanted to just, yeah, I just felt I had to, my heart was beating quickly. <laughs> and I just need to, need to encourage each other to pray for each other and be bored. And let the spirit do what he needs to do. So, thank you for being Sure. It's, um, it's okay if you need to leave. It's okay if you need to go and get your kids. Um, if you'd like prayer, if you'd like to respond in some way, if you'd like to be part of the moment that God has orchestrated and you'd like to just come and Hang out with him further. Ask someone to pray for you. If you want to pray for someone else, if you've had a word and you want to go grab them, um, I'd encourage you to do that. But as we, as we close, um, Justin, would you mind just coming to play? Um, I just want to create a space of some more worship if you'd, if you'd like to come for prayer. Do you, do you want to? Yeah, God, God, just, God doesn't respect our routine. Um, he breaks in when he needs to break in. Um, and to that point,